Well, good morning, 11 o'clock. Ah, okay. So about a fourth of you are actually here. That's good. We'll see if we can get you into this. Um, first thing you need to know about me is that, it, especially if this is your first time here, I'm not Corey Trimble. I'm not Corey, in case you're wondering. Um, my name is Joe, and I'm one of the MITs here. Um, that means ministers in training. So yeah, that's right, you get the trainee. So uh, you need to understand what that is. Maybe you've heard that over the past few months um, that we have this program. And, and I know people say it, and it's a... Uh, but I want you to understand kind of some of the things we've been doing. There were nine of us started in January. And in that time, since then till now, we spent about nine hours a week in class studying doctrine and theology. The rest of our time, we spend in the ministries of this church. We do rotations. We've been in the nursery. We have been with the students. We have been in the children's department. We have helped park cars. We have helped set out the Lord's Supper and prepare that. We've made coffee, we've shaken hands. Um, we've done all the different things that you can imagine is ministry at the Experience Community Church. And it has been great. Now there's a reason for it. It's not just the, so that we can experience. Part of that is a training. What you are supporting through the MIT program is preparing us and the people that are going through it to plant churches. That's exciting. You're doing that. Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing some studying and preparing, but you guys are supporting this church in such a way that we can plant churches. That's exciting. Again, you got a little excited last time, get more excited this time. I'm prompting you. There you go. See, that's the kind of stuff we should get excited about is just a moment ago, I heard Kyle pray. He's praying for every church in this county. And we mean that. We want every church in this county to do well, but we also know that God is working in other counties too, and the experienced church can work there. I'm excited about that. And I think I've said that three times because it's real. Um, and so we're looking forward to what God's going to do. Now, now, if you have been here for the last three weeks, you've seen Corey teach the book of Esther. So this morning, part of the, my training, part of my opportunity is I get to teach this part of Esther. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. But if you haven't been here, and this is your first time, maybe you don't know, and the things that I'll say today are really dependent on some of the things that happen in those first four chapters. So I wanna catch you up real quick, and hang with me if you already know all this stuff. And so we're gonna get through this introduction part. So in chapter one, we're, we meet a fellow, a king. His name is Ahasuerus, is what it says in the Bible, but we know actually that he's King Xerxes from history. Now, Ahasuerus means king of kings, and that's why we call him that, and that's what they labeled him but it's really King Xerxes. The thing we need to know about chapter one and that we think that we learn about Xerxes is that this guy had a lot. He basically had conquered the known world except for one little place called Greece. And he was showing it all off in chapter one, six months of partying, six months of showing it off. And then it says for the last seven days, they lifted all of the restrictions on drinking. And for the last seven days, they really partied right in the city of Susa. And then it said about the seventh day that he was pretty happy. Does anybody have an idea what that might mean? Yeah, plastered is what it was. He was just totally drunk come day seven. He, uh, he's a little bit out of his mind and he's hanging out with his friends. He's in there with all the guys. So he's having a guy party and the queen's having a girl party in another palace. And he says, fellas, you ought to see the queen. And he says, boys, go get the queen. Tell her to come in here. And I want her to parade around in front of these guys so they can see her. Imagine how that went. The, they went over and they said, hey, queen, they want you to come. The king wants you to, and she goes, no. 
And the servants go back and tell him no, and that throws him into a rage. He went from being this having a great time drunk to being an angry drunk. And then he asked the wise guys, the magi, the wise guys that he had, he says, what are we gonna do, fellas? And they came up with a great idea. Well, I'll tell you what you should do. You should make a law that banishes that queen and also a law that goes out to every province and every language that says that wives should obey their husbands. <laughs> That's a great law. Yeah, and it went over about as well as it went over here tonight, today, so. <laughs> They weren't very happy about it, but that was basically the end of chapter one, that there is this edict that goes out and the queen gets banished. And so we jump to chapter two. When we get to chapter two, about three years have passed. And he's gone to war. He fought the Greece, the Grecians. He had some trouble with about 300 Spartans. Sound familiar? They slowed him down quite a bit, and then he ended up losing, coming back home. So he comes back home, and he's all depressed. He thinks about, I lost the battle, and then he remembers, I used to have a really awesome queen, and something happened with her, and he's kind of blaming everybody else. And some of his friends, his cohorts, or his frat brothers, I don't know what they were, but they had a great idea. And so chapter one is kind of silly and ridiculous because he's a king of excess. Now in chapter two, it gets sick because his friends have this idea, why don't you go, why don't we go, there's a lot of beautiful young virgins in the kingdom in the 127 provinces, why don't we go get a bunch of them? We'll bring them here, we'll get them ready for you, and you can sleep with one every night until you find one that's good enough to be your queen. The Bible's pretty clear that they go and take these girls. Seize, one of the girls they took that was already in the city of Susa is a girl named Esther. Ah, that's the name of the book. So we're introduced to Esther in chapter two, and she's one of them that's seized, and she's prepared, and she spends a year being prepared. Now, it says that they got beauty treatments and things like that, but also what happened was they were trained. They were groomed, is a better word, for a year. Oh, it's dark. It's sick. And then each one of these girls is having their turn, their night with the king. And then it was Esther's turn, and her night with the king, she was the one that pleased him the most. And he chose her, and he made her queen, not the way that anyone would ever, any woman would ever want to become queen. And remember, she's just a girl, probably 14 years old. So she's taken and she becomes queen. A little bit of time passes. We don't know exactly how much, but we don't think it's very much time. And in that same chapter at the very end, it says that Mordecai was out and this is her cousin, who is also kind of her dad that's adopted her because her parents have died. So her cousin Mordecai is out of the king's gate. He hears a rumor, a couple of guys talking about wanting to assassinate the king. Well, he goes and tells Esther. Esther goes and tells the king. The king, I'm going really fast. The king investigates, finds out that these guys are really planning to assassinate him. So he has them executed. <laughs> And then at the very end of chapter two, it says that, that this was recorded in the daily journal. In chapter two, that was it. No reward for Mordecai for telling on these, nothing. So that's important. And so that's the way that ends. Chapter three, we jump forward about another four or five years. So at this point, Esther is probably 19 years old. And we get, meet a new guy. Oh, you're gonna love this guy. If you were here last week, you got to meet Haman. Oh, he's a character. So Haman has wiggled his way through the kingdom. And we know he's a man of great resource. He has a lot of money. And I believe probably he bribed his way into the kingdom. And he gets up to the position of second in command, basically prime minister of Persia. So you have the king Xerxes, you have the prime minister of Persia, who is Haman, and he is in a position of authority. The Bible tells us some things about people in positions of authority, and we should give them a certain amount of due respect. 
Well, he knows that he is in that position. He likes it that when he walks in the room and people are sitting down, they stand up. He likes it when he walks by people that are standing up, they bow their head. He loves it. It's part of his life. Except for this one guy named Mordecai. It happens to be that same guy that's the cousin of Esther, and he won't stand if he's sitting, and he won't bow if he's standing. One guy in the kingdom, and Haman can't stand it. So he, he does what any logical person would do. He decides that maybe because Mordecai's a Jew, all the Jews should be killed because one guy, and he blames an entire race for the actions of one guy. And the whole race must be eliminated. So he goes to the king and he says, king, there's this whole race of people. They're called the Jews and they don't obey the king's laws. And they should be destroyed. And this king, you know, the same one that got that advice from his magi earlier that banished the queen and he took some advice about taking these girls. He hears Haman say that and he says, okay, here, take my signet ring, you make it so. And it ends with this decree. Chapter three ends with a decree that says all the Jews will be killed on this certain day, about 10 or 11 months in the future. And then on that day, if you are a citizen of Persia, you can kill, please kill the men, the women, the children. And if you do that, you can take everything they own and it'll be yours. Ooh, so chapter two was pretty gross. Chapter three is pretty dark. And then chapter four starts with Mordecai. He's in the middle of the courtyard there and he is screaming and crying. He has torn his clothes. He's put on some sackcloth and he's put ash on his head because he's grieving. And that was a sign of grief. It was a very coarse material. It was like, I'm not comfortable. Well, some of Esther's servants saw Mordecai out in the courtyard and he's out there screaming and wailing and they see him and they don't understand. They just see him acting well crazy. And they go to Esther and say, listen, your cousin Mordecai is out in the courtyard and he is crying and screaming and he's got on some filthy clothes. And Esther says, well, take the man some clean clothes. Basically, that's what it says, basically. And so they take the clothes out to him and that's when Mordecai says, listen, this isn't about clothes. This is about our people. They're all going to be destroyed. So he gets all the materials, all the edict, and he puts it all together. And he goes, take this and show this to the queen and tell her she has to go tell the king to spare us. So they take it to the queen. They take it to Esther and she reads it and she, and she is broken, but she sends a message back to Mordecai that says, listen, I can't. There's a law, I can't just go into the presence of the king without him inviting me. If I do that, I will be killed. Everyone knows that's the law. And so they send the message back to Mordecai and he has a new message for her. And it's basically this, yeah, I know. But have you considered that maybe you're in the royal palace and you have this position, and here's the line, for such a time as this. It's pretty heavy, right? And then Esther understands something happens. And right there at the end of chapter four, Esther says, okay. And she sends a message back to Mordecai. And it says this, you get all the Jews in the city fast. Don't eat, don't drink for three days. And she says, I will get all of my servants to fast. They won't eat, they won't drink for three days. She goes, I will fast. I won't eat or drink for three days. And then at the end of the three days, I will go see the king. I will walk into where he is 
into that courtyard, even though it's against the law, and it ends with this, whether I live or die. Okay, so that was it. I just wanted to get you all caught up on those first four chapters. Kind of a cliffhanger there. Uh, I don't know if you felt it, but I did. Every time I read it, I feel it. You know, it's like, oh, I can't wait to turn the page. Okay, so this is where you can follow along. If you have your Bible, you're gonna wanna open to Esther chapter five, okay? So we're gonna get there. Last week, Corey said this. We know, are we living for such a time as this? We know that Esther was brought to that place and that's why that scripture is in there. That's why it says that Mordecai wasn't just all wise. It's just that God knew what he was doing, right? But our question last week was, do we realize that we have purpose, that we have this time in our lives to do what God would have us do? Do we realize that, that we have that kind of purpose, like Esther? Do you realize that? You should, you should. And this week, we're gonna look at this. What's fueling that obedience? If we're willing to take steps like Esther, why? And what is gonna, what's gonna come of that? So let's look in the scripture. If you wanna go ahead and open your Bibles, maybe open your app. You can follow along there. Maybe you got a handout on the way in. If you didn't get one and you want one, you can probably get one on the way out. So, but that's the ways that you can follow along. I'm gonna pray. And when I get finished praying, we'll get right into chapter five. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak. Father, we thank you for what's led us up to this point and what will lead us into the future. Father, we do pray for this service right here in this room, but we also earnestly pray for every service in every church in this city, in this county. Father, we pray that you're being proclaimed there and that hearts are being opened to your message, your word, and lives are being changed. Father, we pray that people all across this county would hear your voice in Christ's name. Amen. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even half to half the kingdom will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. And the king said, hurry, go and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be done. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet, I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. Okay. So here's what we've seen. Esther's is a queen of follow through. She had spent her time of preparation. Remember, she called them to fast. That was the cliffhanger at the end. And I'm gonna go in and live or die, I'm gonna do it. Here's what happened. Somewhere, I don't know if it was at the beginning of those three days, in the middle of that fast, or at the end, but somewhere she went from the fear that she had to faith. She'd taken a step somewhere in there going from fear to faith. And this is what we realize, that God doesn't put us in positions of opportunity just so that maybe we might consider doing something or we just might almost do it or maybe do something. 
God gives us opportunities for a reason. He puts us in position of opportunity for obedience. That's what he's doing, and that's what he did for Esther, and we see her do it. The question is, can we do it, or will we do it? I don't know, we can. And look what happens. Here she is, she's made it, right? She's still alive, she didn't die, so there we go. Next episode, where she lives. And then the king asked the best possible question. He says, whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. Now, he's not really offering half the kingdom. He's just really saying, I got all the resources and I can do anything for you you want. I don't think that was fake. I think that was real. I think he was really just offering that. I realize that she's a little bit older now and she makes this crazy request. There was an opportunity for her to say, okay, so there's this guy, his name is Haman. He's trying to kill all the Jews and you kind of supported it maybe by accident. I don't know, but you need to fix it. She doesn't say anything like that. Instead, she says, come to the banquet and bring Haman. We gotta understand here, she didn't change her mind and she wasn't changing the subject. She had a plan. She had a plan. So let me step 2,500 years into the future because some things haven't changed. Esther had been, been with this man for five years. She knew that he was a narcissist. She knew that he was cruel. She knew that he was about satisfying himself and she knew that he could get angry real fast. She knew that the last queen that crossed him lost her life. That still happens today. Any woman that's had to go talk to her abusive husband had to have a plan before she went in there because she thought maybe anything could trigger him. So she had to make a plan. Women still make plans today. So this isn't so far away. She had a plan and part of her plan was to survive. But something else we're gonna learn here. She had this fasting and two feast strategy and it kind of looks like a delay tactic because she gets that first feast and, and she'd already been preparing. She knew what she was gonna do that day. The feast was already made. They get Haman, they have that one. Then she says, come back tomorrow. Remember here, it's not delay tactic. She had spent three days fasting and praying. This wasn't just Esther's plan, this was God's plan. This was God's plan. And as we follow Christ, we need to understand we need to be very intentional, we need to be strategic, and we need to be patient. Because God has a plan. He definitely not, doesn't matter how dark your circumstance is, God has a plan. And the last part of this is, is we shouldn't get lost in what we can't see. Because God is calling us to do something. Now, let me, just for me, it's like God's saying, Joe, climb this mountain. And I'm like, that mountain? Oh yeah, that looks cool. That's gonna be a pretty good view when I get up there. And then he says, wait, uh, Joe, climb this mountain and go to the other side. I'm like, whoa, whoa. What's on the other side of the mountain, God? And God says, no, climb the mountain, Joe. Yeah, God, but what's on the other side of the mountain? Because like, it's just me going up this mountain. If there's an army on the other side, I kind of want to stay on this side of the mountain. <laughs> Joe, just climb the mountain. God, it's a pretty big drop off on the other side. I'm a little afraid of heights. Just, I mean, I can stay over here. It's good on this side of the mountain. And he says, Joe, climb the mountain. And then I'm like, okay, God, okay, I'm trusting you. I'm pretty sure on this side of the mountain, it's about a three foot drop. And that's about all these old ankles can handle. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take a few steps and go up the mountain, God. So I start climbing the mountain. 
we can't get lost in what we can't see. And we can't get lost in why. Sometimes we'll just say, why, God, why? Why would I do this? Reminds me of my four-year-old grandson. Listen, Clayson. I said, Clayson, time to brush your teeth. Why? Because you've been eating all them sweets that your awesome grandpa gave you all those cookies. Remember that? And that slushy you drank? Yeah. And we're going to get that blue off your teeth before your mama sees. So brush your teeth. And he says, why? I said, well, because it causes cavities. And cavities is like where things can get in your teeth and weaken them and weaken your enamel. And he goes, why? And I start to realize this is not about brushing his teeth. This is about him not wanting to brush his teeth. And we're the same way. Why? Why, God? God says do it. He's got a plan. He's got a plan. Let's look at this guy. Look at, look at, oh, Haman. Man, you got to love this guy. That day, Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble at the fear of his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh, to join him. Then Haman described for them the glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all that the king had honored him and promoted him to the rank over the other officials in the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. And I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet high tall and ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows constructed. Have you seen these folks kind of get bad advice in here? There's a pattern, there's kind of a pattern. And it says that he was full of joy and then filled with rage. So in the time it takes Haman to go from the king's door to the king's gate, I don't know how, long, how far it was, but in that short time, he went from full of joy to filled with rage. Top of the world to the valley of rage. And see, the thing is his joy is dependent on his position in the eyes of everyone else because he just kind of wants to be worshiped. That's what he is. It's not about him worshiping idols. He really wants to be worshiped. And we can see it in him. It's not too hard to see that old Haman's a mess. But then I have to ask myself this question, what makes me angry? Because I love this book of Esther and I really, there's a lot of ways I want to identify with Esther or maybe Mordecai, but not Xerxes and not Haman. But maybe I do. What is it that takes you from joy to anger in an instant? Can you, are you capable of that? Time to confess. Because I asked if you were capable of it, no one jumped up and gave testimony about how you can do it, so it's my turn. Let, let me tell you about how this can happen. Again, I'm not trying to project this on anyone else, this is just my confession. Maybe you'll identify with it, maybe you won't, but let me get this started. When I'm driving, And when I had come to a red light and I am the second car, not the first car at the red light, the second car, there's one car in front of me and I can see the light really well from right here. 
the light's red, we're all good, the kids are in the back, you know, the wife, we got the music on and we're singing songs, having a great time, all is well. <laughs> and the light turns green. And that joker in front of me doesn't go. What's wrong with that guy? Why isn't he going? I'm, he's on his phone, he's distracted, he's on his phone, he's just on his phone, that's why he's not going. I think I need to honk the horn. You know how long it takes for me to get there? One 1,000, two 1,000, three with the three seconds, that's it. It's all it takes, three seconds, and man, I am been out of shape. You, three seconds. Do you know that that is exactly how long it takes to cook a Pop-Tart in a microwave? <laughs> three seconds, three seconds in a microwave and I'm done, that's it. So I don't wanna spend any time in a microwave, I'm not even sure why I said that, I'm not getting in a microwave. I know that some of you think I could fit, but I, I can't. Three seconds and I, I'm angry. I know that's not you, you never get upset when you're driving, but that's me and it doesn't make any sense at all because, well, no, that guy's distracted and you're saying, oh, you're justified. People need to be paying more attention to those lights and need to go and it turns green. But you know what I realized and I've been thinking about this, it's kind of weighing heavy on me is that God kind of been saying, Joe, you don't even know about that car in front of you. Because maybe the guy driving that car six months ago, he, the light turned green, he took off, another car came, T-boned him. And when he got out of the hospital and recovered from his injuries, he made a commitment, I will never hit the gas when the light turns green again. I will always wait. And at that moment, that moment, I think maybe I could see what my idol could be. There's something that takes me from joy to rage really quick. And I want you to know that's not joy, by the way. That's an attitude that I need to lose what I do have is real joy. And I don't lose it inside my car. Because real joy can't be taken away. The Bible says, Jesus himself said that when he was talking to his disciples and it was time for him to go, for time for him to go and be crucified, he shared with them before that, listen, I'm gonna go, you're gonna be sad, but I'm gonna come back and I'm bringing someone with me. There's gonna be the Holy Spirit. You're gonna receive the Holy Spirit and then no one can take your joy. That's the promise to the disciples, that's the promise to you. Once you have Christ and you have the Spirit, no one can take your joy. He can't lose that because it doesn't depend on your circumstances. Amen. It comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ and he says you can have that and you can be okay at the red light and you can start to think and I will speak to you and let you know that be patient, Joe, you can wait three seconds. Now, if it gets to five, put your hand over the horn just in case. <laughs> Never heard God say that, but... That's just, I'm, only, I'm only up to about five seconds, just letting you know, but God's working on me. It says Haman controlled himself. The only way that he could really renew and refresh his joy was to go home, tell them how awesome he was and, and get feedback from them. And so I thought about that. I was like, well, that's Haman, man. He's just lifting himself, lifting himself up. And that's terrible and that's bad. But the reality is this, it's okay to have value. It's okay to know that you're valuable because you are. You are valuable. Of course you're valuable to God, but I'm telling you this, you're valuable to your family. You're valuable to this family. I wanna be a better husband. I should have value to my wife. I should be valuable to my wife. I should be valuable to my kids. I should be valuable to my grandkids. I should be valuable to my coworkers. I have value. 
But the problem is when I try to create that value and try to elevate that into something that it's not, I have to remember the source of my significance and my value. And I remember that because I know I don't just need God, I need to ask God. I need him. I'm not all that I should be and I know that because of that, I need God, I need God. But we make the mistake sometimes of just stopping and saying, oh, I need God, I need God, I need God. And we're afraid to say, God help me. That's the next step. God help me. I don't just need God, I need help from God. There's an old saying, God helps those who help themselves. Silly, hogwash, that's not in the Bible. God helps the helpless. And I've been helpless and I've needed God and I've cried out and he's answered. He does it for us. But this guy, Haman, never enough. He lists all of his personal assets. He lists his accomplishments, his position, even his offspring, and he's still not satisfied. He needed one thing, Mordecai to die. He would be complete, he would be satisfied, and everyone in the kingdom would bow down to him if this one guy would die. One guy, that's all it took. So again, I come down pretty hard on Haman, but then I think about me again. What is it that I need? What is it that I'm trying to get one more thing? And then I think about our culture. What are we just constantly seeking more things, just a little more success, a little more money, a little more satisfaction, a little more pleasure. And this is what's driving a lot of our culture. Me, me, I need a little more. And what price are we willing to pay for that? See, for Mordecai, it was this. I mean, for Haman, it was this, kill Mordecai, kill a man. It was pretty clear in there. But for us, maybe we don't get it that realize if we could stop and realize that the things that we're pursuing, that satisfaction that we pursue is, could cost someone their life. Joe, I don't care. I, I'm, it's just me. I'm not hurting anyone. Yes, you are. Because you have value. Because we need you. Yes, you are. Joe, I, I was just looking at, I was just looking at my phone and I, I was some things there, you know, but it was just me and it, I, I didn't hurt my wife or my kids. I was just looking at some things. Maybe I shouldn't look at, but, but they're okay. No, they're not. You're distracted. You're distracting from your relationship with Christ. You're distracting from your relationship with your kids, with your wife. Listen, there are victims when you think you are sinning in some victimless way because you have value. We need you. Your family needs you. It's gonna cost somebody something, and it's probably not you. It'll probably cost you someone else. Let's look at what happens here in chapter six. That night, sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book of recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Remember that? The king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? And the king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. And the king asked, who's in the court? <laughs> this gets good. Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him and said, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. <laughs> Who knew that this stuff gets good? How could it be that the same night 
that Haman is having gallows built for Mordecai. And that same night, the king's insomnia flares up and he says, boys, I can't go to sleep. I'm tired of counting camels. Bring me the most boring book in the kingdom. <laughs> little paraphrase, just a little paraphrase. And so they bring out the book of records of daily events and they're reading it to him. He's hoping he can fall asleep, but he can't. And then he stays awake all night. They keep reading and the sun is coming up and they get to this point where Mordecai had saved his life. And he says, hey, fellas, what does it say that I did for him after that? And they said, nothing. And so at this point, the king's scared because he's about to lose face. Now we know he has no ethics, right? No morals, but somehow he thinks he has honor and he didn't honor the one that saved the king. And so he was a little bit scared and we know he can't make decisions by himself. He can't figure anything out. He has to have some advice and he says, who's in the courtyard? <laughs> and it just happens to be Haman. <coughs> How could all of that happen? Was this part of Esther's plan? No. Well, what about Mordecai? Maybe he knew, no. <laughs> the only one that knew all of this plan was God. We call that providence. That's providence. That's knowing this, that God is always at work for our good and his glory. And we see it all throughout this book. And we should be able to see it in our lives if we'll open our eyes. Amen. Who knew? God knew. Amen. Look at Haman's pride. Woo. So the king starts to speak. Um, I, I wanna read a little scripture there. Honor, I clicked that thing twice. I'm like, I'm about to skip a whole lot of scripture. We better get back to it. It's like because you're gonna love this. If, and I'm gonna know, if you start loving this because maybe you've not read this, don't worry about it, it's okay. And don't read ahead of me. I know some of you already got your Bibles open, started reading. Haman entered and the king asked, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who's the king? Who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and place him on a horse that the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head, the crown on the horse's head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on a horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And the king told Haman, hurry and do just what you've proposed. Take the garment, the horse, for Mordecai, the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you've suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Here we go. This is Haman's pride. So as the king is speaking, Haman can only hear one thing, himself. He can only see himself. He can only imagine himself as the one that's worthy of honor. And this is what we see. His pride has dulled all of his senses, including his anger, and he sought recognition worthy of a king. But the reality is this, Haman is not the king. He was just a man that had bribed his way into the palace. He probably shouldn't have even been there. This is what I learned. When the king of kings speaks, that was just the king. When the king of kings speaks, 
we shouldn't be so desensitized to the word of God as it's being shared with us or as we're reading it and the Holy Spirit as he's speaking to us that somehow, some way we elevate ourselves or anyone else to the glory that only God deserves. Well, what does that mean, Joe? Let me tell you, I'm gonna give you the best example that we see in our culture today, the one that hits home. Is that elevation a lot of times happens right here in a place just like this in a building similar to this, somewhere in our country. Somewhere there's a person standing in a place like this with a crowd like that, and they're elevating themselves above the glory that God deserves. And that's bad. We don't have that here. That's not our pastor. But you know what really, to me, is worse than this? Is that there's a building like this with a place like this for a person to stand and out there, there are people that elevate this guy to a place above the glory that God deserves. That may be worse. That's not what we do. We serve a God. We serve a Savior. Christ is the one that paid the price for, for us to enter the kingdom. We can't bribe our way in, and we can't elevate ourselves there, and we shouldn't elevate anyone else. Christ paid the price, and we should never forget the price that he paid. He's the one that shed his blood, allowed his body to be broken for our sins. He was our sacrifice. We can't forget that. At the end of the service, there'll be an opportunity. You'll go to one of these tables with a lamp, and the Lord's Supper is there, the bread and the juice, the body and the blood of Jesus, and we can celebrate and remember that for everyone, everyone that follows Christ. We can't forget the price he paid. And then something unthinkable happens. Man, Haman must have spent some time that night thinking about how good it would be without Mordecai. And he had this really quick answer. It so was the king's answer. What we have to know is if we continue in our arrogance, kind of like Haman, we may find ourselves humbled by events we never imagined. Things could happen that we didn't know. I'm hiding it. I'm keeping my whole bad life hidden. And I am projecting this good, awesome life that I have created for myself. If you think that, Buckle up, folks, because it's coming and it's going to be bad because God has a way of humbling the proud. Look what happens. Maybe it even gets worse. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off home, mournful with his head covered. Haman told his wife Suresh and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zerah said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Cliffhanger. That's, I'm stopping. Not going to read anymore. I, I see you looking down reading the next stop. We, Corey will tell you about that later. Trust me. And it really goes from bad to worse. So the unthinkable thing, he, he shares what should be done, what he thinks is for him, and then he literally has to do that for Mordecai, and that sucks all of his joy out again, and the only place he knows to refill his joy is back home. He runs home, covers his head, runs home to get refilled. All he's gotta do is remind him how awesome and great he is, and they will encourage him in that way and say, yes, you're awesome, and maybe you can still kill Mordecai. But that's not what happened. They didn't offer any support. This was gonna be a day worse than humiliation. They literally said that Mordecai would be his downfall. 
And you know why? Because he prepared for the wrong thing. Haman was focused on elevating himself to the highest position in the kingdom and suddenly everything was going in the wrong direction. What direction, what are we preparing for? What, where, what's the direction of your life? What are you preparing for? And really a big question here is, when things start to go south or start to come unraveled and really going the wrong direction, where do you go? Haman went back to the people that had been giving him bad advice the whole time. Xerxes had done the same thing and all, every result was horrible and negative and bad. So I have to ask this real question, where do you go? What, to the locker room? To the water fountain at work? Let me tell you where I go. I go to my life group. We don't just have life groups here because it's cool. We don't have life groups because we don't have Sunday school. That's not why we have life groups. We have life groups because it's got the word life in it. We're supposed to live together. It's where I find that community when, guess what? Sometimes I make wrong decisions and things go south in my life. It's just the reality. But I've got some people that love the same God I love, that read the same book I read and will speak truth to me. I've got that because I have a life group and I have some other accountability partners, maybe 12. <laughs> Someone said this morning, said, you know, I found that when you talk about accountability partners, you don't just need one or two because sometimes you can't reach those one or two. You need 10. There's 12 of us in my life group. If you don't have one, if you're not in a life group, this is great news for you. There, there are 29 at least new life groups this month. That means there's a place for you. If you're not in a life group, there is a place for you. Opportunity that you could just take. It's right there in front of you. Open up your app, go to life groups, seek some information, send us an email. Just at least at info at, at experiencecc.com. You just maybe start there. It's the easiest one to, to remember. You need to be in a life group and they're here for you. I have a place that I can go. I'm, I'm praying that you do too. If you don't, we have a place that you can go. It's called Life Groups. So this has all been really about opportunity. I know we've been talking about obedience, but really the opportunity that Esther had. Life's full of opportunities. We're gonna have them. Sometimes they look like forks in the road and you can't see what's on either direction. You just know that I've got to make go this way or this way, but I'm not sure. And I'm not saying be careless. I'm saying be smart, be wise. This isn't the time for fear. It's a time for prayer, fasting, and faith. We have huge decisions in our lives. Maybe some of you right now are weighed down with this gigantic decision. You're not sure what to do. I wanna tell you what to do. Pray, <laughs> fast and have faith because you're gonna have to make some decisions because it ultimately comes to that. You can't stay at the fork in the road. We can't stay at the bottom of the mountain. That's not where God would have us. Opportunity always involves a choice. Good or bad, right or wrong, we decide. This is where free will really comes in. We decide which direction we're gonna go. Am I gonna stay here? Am I gonna go up? Am I gonna right? Am I gonna go left? And then I know what happens. You start worrying. Ooh, maybe you're one of those scenario peoples. Now, if I do this, this is gonna happen. If I do this, and you create 6,000 scenarios, that's only a little bit of an exaggeration. But the reality is this, God has one plan. 
He is a sovereign God and he knows what his plan is. So if worry starts delaying our decisions, pray fast and trust God's plan. This is the clear message that we're getting from Esther today, that God has a plan. He's giving us opportunities. He's giving us an opportunity to make a decision. Now, this is getting pretty heavy. So I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna back off a little bit because some of you are like, man, I don't know this Joe, but he's pretty heavy. He's trying to make us make big decisions today. So look, I'm backing off as far as I can and go ahead, give you a little relief. Not every opportunity and not every decision you have to make is this giant life-changing thing. It's not all dark like it is in parts of the book of Esther. Some of our decisions, some of our opportunities are pretty simple. <laughs> maybe, maybe God has been tinging at your heart. Maybe you saw a message on the app or, or maybe you heard someone say something in an announcement and, and you thought, you know what? Maybe I should serve in Eon. Maybe I could help with those babies in the nursery. Maybe I could go and help a class in Echo. Maybe I could help park cars. I think I'd like to help make coffee and, and meet people at the doors. See, there are opportunities to serve here, abundant opportunities. They are all over the place. Maybe you wanna do this ministry. It's called, it's called Emerge. This one's awesome. It's our one-on-one -on -one ministry with our special needs folks. Man, I got to do that. That was good. And maybe you wanna help there. There are some great opportunities to serve here. Listen, Isaiah 117 is asking some people to serve by, by committing to do some giving. That's service. <laughs> These aren't hard, difficult decisions. It's just you and God, and he's saying, hey, I'm giving you an opportunity, and you've got to say yes or no. Yeah, I'm putting a lot of pressure on you because there's a direction that God wants us to go. I, and I don't know, get on the app, look down at serve, Scroll through some, through some things, get some information and take the next step. Trust God's plan because this is gonna lead us all to obedience. A little bit of obedience in some small things might help us make decisions in some big things because that's kind of the way it is. God's gonna give us opportunities to trust his plan. This is why, so that we can enjoy the act of obedience. Obedience isn't drudgery. It's not a bad thing. It's an awesome thing because when we're obedient, awesome things happen. Joy happens when we are obedient. Look, when we allow, when we follow Christ and we are obedient, we get to experience real joy, real peace, and we get to live in this real promise that God's plan is for our good and his glory. This is a great life. In case you didn't notice, I'm a little older than Corey too. This is my gray hair. It's not, I didn't go to and get it colored this way. This is all mine, what I have left. And so what I'm saying is I've lived some of this life and I've lived a little life without obedience and it wasn't any good. This is a good life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And this is what he means. I'm gonna give you opportunities to love me. That's what obedience is. And so I've loved him and I've been obedient and man, life is grand and it's going a good direction, which brings me to the last question. 
Is the direction of your life honoring God? I think today you're just gonna need to ask yourself that question. Maybe when you get in the car with your family, maybe you all need to talk about that. Maybe you need to talk about the way that you know that you need to serve or the know that you need to make a decision about something that you've been struggling with. And let's be honest too, maybe you need to fast. Maybe you need to pray and start trusting God. I wanna pray for you right now. If you'll bow your heads, close your eyes, give you an opportunity to respond. Now there's three ways you can do that. As you, Pastor Amanda's gonna be up here to my right, your left, right here at the edge of the stage. She works with our high school students and she is ready to answer your questions. If you have a question about maybe something I said tonight, something that's maybe been on your heart, maybe something about ministries here, whatever, if you have questions, please come see Pastor Amanda. She's here, she wants to talk with you. She loves to talk with you. You could also respond, there's gonna be people to the left and right of the stage and they are there to pray with you. They want to pray with you because maybe you know that you need help some way, just prayer. You know that prayer could be the beginning of your next step. They're here to pray with you. Another way that you can respond if you've accepted Christ as your savior, all around the room, everywhere there's a lamp on a table, there's the Lord's Supper. There it is, it's the bread and wine. And at this service, just this one, I just wanna ask you to do this. If you can go and get that, on these columns here, there's some disposable ones there, you can get them here. Go get that, return back to your seat and sit down for just a moment. And once we all get kind of back together, Pastor Greg is gonna come up and just, we're gonna have a Lord's Supper together. Just remembering the price that was paid for the fellowship that we have with him, for the peace and the joy that we can experience. We wanna celebrate that together today. I know that's a little different, but that's the way we're gonna do it today. So just get it, return back to your seat. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the way you, you're, you're revealing yourself and you're showing us ourselves through this book of Esther. We pray that you keep doing that. God, we pray right now as this week we'll have opportunities that we would respond to you with faith and obedience. And Father, that we would live in the joy and peace of knowing that we've shown our love to you. Thank you for that. I just pray that this week would be a week full of joy. In Christ's name. Amen.